Father, we pray that you will indeed speak to us. Let your word move deep into our souls as we continue in worship. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Did you make any resolutions for 2012? I read recently that about 50% of Americans do so. And out of that 50%, about 8% are always successful. 19% maybe every other year do most of their resolutions. 49% hardly ever do their resolutions, get them right. And 24% just fail outright. Don't even probably get past today. Now, it may be why one guy decided that the only resolution, he may only make resolutions that he was sure he could keep. So he resolved to gain weight, (laughs) to stop exercising, to read less and watch more television. He resolved to procrastinate more, to give, stop giving time and money to charities to not date any more movie stars, and to never make any New Year's resolutions again. I think those are resolutions that most of Americans could get behind. Uh, I think we we could do that. You know, January 1st is an arbitrary day. You know, you wake up this morning, it's, it's just a day like any other day. But there's something about this day that gives us a feeling of, of starting new, starting over, having an opportunity to see things in a new light. And even though it doesn't erase the past, the feeling of starting over can be a wonderful thing. We ought to take advantage of opportunities that call us to step back and evaluate our lives, where we've been, where we are, where we hope to be. There's something very biblical about forgetting what's behind and striving for what's ahead. It's this idea of of striving for what's ahead, of, of thinking about where we're going to be, that drew my attention to this passage in the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. There's something here that speaks to the yearning in our souls for something new, something different, something great. Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road toward Jerusalem, toward his arrest and death. And even though Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, I don't think they really grasp the gravity of, of what is awaiting Jesus when they arrive in Jerusalem. But they have some sense that they are on the cusp of something dramatic. Something is going to be different. Something about the kingdom is, seems like it's coming to a head. And so as they're walking along, these two brothers, James and John, somehow get Jesus aside from the rest of the guys. And they say to him, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Now, I'm always just a a little bit leery when somebody says to me, would you do a favor, do me a favor? Now, I may be very happy to do them a favor. I just don't know what the favor is that they want me to do yet. They might want me to jump off a cliff for them. 
Or they might want me to cheat on a test for them. They might want me to lie about their whereabouts at the time in question to the authorities. I've been watching too many Perry Mason reruns, I think. You know, you, you don't know what people are going to ask you when they say, would you do me a favor? And so I tend to say, well, that depends. What are you, what are you asking me to do? And Jesus says to the brothers, well... What do you want me to do for you? And these two brothers answer, we want you to make us top dogs in your kingdom. Now, despite not understanding all the implications of his kingdom, James and John realize that there's something special about Jesus. That Jesus has something no one else has. That Jesus can do miracles. He isn't intimidated by the authorities, both religious or secular. Jesus has power that is unequaled, at least in their circles, certainly. And sensing that something is brewing, that a showdown is looming, that Jesus is about to bring what's hidden into the light. That Jesus is about to let things go. They see this window of opportunity and they make their move to get in on the ground floor. Now the question What they want Jesus to do for them really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's a normal, natural question. Honestly, I think it's a question I would ask if I were in their shoes and I had their guts. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, it's an ambitious question. There's no doubt about that. But doesn't our world operate on, on the backs and the minds and the initiatives of the ambitious? I mean, it's the ambitious people who invent the products that we use every day. It's the ambitious people who run companies and and write books and lead seminars. It's ambitious people who who are the ones who are persistent and opportunistic that we pay money to see and we stand in line to meet and we cherish getting their autograph and we admire what they've accomplished. It's the ambitious people whose names you'll see printed on the ballot when you step behind the curtain come November. Let's not be naive. Let's not pretend that the world runs on anything other than ambition. You have to be blind not to to believe that being ambitious and self-promoting is the way you get ahead in this life. I mean, it's always been that way. Ambition is not necessarily a dirty word. Ambition is sort of just a part of being a successful human being, right? I mean, why do you think the ten disciples are so upset with James and John? Because they're all thinking to themselves, oh, why didn't we think of that first? They're jealous because James and John are asking for something they want. They're indignant because James and John have enough ambition to ask before they do. They're upset because these guys are going to potentially get what they want. Now, we tend to react negatively to James and John, but to most of the world... These are guys who are just doing what you do. They're confident. They're the haves that the have-nots emulate. These are the corporate giants who believe the sky's the limit. These are the guys who run self-esteem seminars. If you can think it, you can do it. This is the attitude you need to survive and to be successful in this world. And often in the church. This is the message that we hear from the evangelical church. This is what success looks like. This is what makes the world go round. And the sooner the church begins to accept it, 
the sooner the church will make an impact on the world for Christ. And we aren't nearly as crass about it as James and John appear to be. We say if we could, if we could just harness the power of God, then we could change the world. But it's rooted in a belief that in order to change the world, you have to have power and all that goes with it. That that's just the way things are. But Jesus reminds them that leaders in the kingdom are not defined by power, but by humility and surrender and sacrifice and ultimately servanthood. They will only be powerful if they acknowledge their weakness, their need for God, their fallibility. Jesus explains that in his kingdom, the places of honor are connected to suffering, not power. If you ask Jesus to make you great in his kingdom, then you're asking him to help you be a servant, a slave. I suspect if any of you made any New Year's resolutions, they probably weren't. In 2012, I want to find as many ways to serve others as I possibly can without any recognition or acknowledgement. I resolve in 2012 to find and perform every unenviable task possible. Whatever other people don't want to do, whatever people think is, is way below them, those are the kinds of things that I want to try to do. I'll be successful in my resolutions if I can find as many of those things as possible. I resolve this year to give up my rights as often as I possibly can. Research tells us that 47% of the resolutions are related to self-improvement and education. 38% related to weight. 34% related to money. 31% related to relationships. I don't really see anything here about finding ways to serve others. About putting ourselves in a position to be taken advantage of. And yet, if we want to have a great year... A truly great year, Jesus tells us that this will mean adopting a spirit of humility, of servanthood, of being a slave to all. Not just a couple of people that it's easy to be a slave to, but all people. Our struggle with greatness is rooted in our misconception about the economy of Christ's kingdom. Being a slave is so unappealing to us that we've convinced ourselves that surely we misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Something's been lost in the translation. There's a cultural quirk that we're missing. You can't really take Jesus literally about things like this. But we're wrong. And we can find all kinds of loopholes and clarifications that lessen Jesus' demands. But when we do that, we miss Jesus. And to our culture, societal and ecclesiastical, enamored with power and recognition, with wealth and status, I don't know how Jesus could say it any more clearly. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the way of Christ's kingdom because it's the way of Christ. 
Now you'll notice that Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? Not once, but twice in Mark chapter 10. Now it seems strange that Jesus would ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, it's one of those questions that you can almost hear the response being, duh, really? Seriously? I, what do you want me to, what, what do I want you to do for me? I want to see. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels, people who are new to Jesus tend to be more interested in healing than in power? Because when your life revolves around a pressing need, the need is paramount. Bartimaeus could have asked for power and he could have asked for position, but he's so cognizant of his need that nothing else really matters. And it's the people who recognize their need for Jesus, who have no reason to think that they deserve anything from Jesus. Those are the people who are healed and transformed and made new by Jesus. After reading that passage again this morning, I was struck by what it must have felt like once when Bartimaeus goes from being blind to being able to see. As he stumbles over to Jesus, has no idea what Jesus looks like, has no idea any, what Jesus is wearing, has no idea about his surroundings. He can't see any of it. And in a moment, it's all clear. Wow. Now you ask, I ask you, which of those two things, having power or being able to see, It's going to transform a person's life. Jesus says that Bartimaeus' faith is what makes him well. Seems an odd thing for Jesus to say because I'm pretty sure Jesus is the one who makes him well. But it's so clear that through Jesus' words that Jesus heals him in response to his faith. Faith born out of helplessness, not a sense of entitlement. Faith born out of a spirit that declares Jesus is great and I'm nothing rather than Jesus is great and so am I. I think that's James and John's problem. They've gotten that backwards and often it's our problem too. See, faith is directly connected to our recognition of need. Arrogance is a sense of privilege and entitlement and it eliminates faith because the spirit assumes that we're worthy of what we ask and if we don't get it, then something is wrong with God because he owes me. Faith assumes that we're not worthy of what we ask and if we get it, it's only because God is merciful. Arrogance and entitlement assume that the kingdom of God is about power and status and recognition Faith assumes that the kingdom of God is about humility and surrender and transformation. Bartimaeus knows he has nothing, that he is nothing. He comes in faith, not arrogance. He's not asking to be powerful. He's asking to see. And in the span of just a, a few hours, maybe less, Jesus asks the same question of two different people. But the implications of the question are radically different. James and John ask because they believe that they are important and they want power. And Bartimaeus asks because he believes that Jesus is important. 
And he wants to be healed. He wants to be different. He wants to be made new. It intrigues me that in neither situation does Jesus assume that he knows what the people want from him. I think it's important for him for them to ask him what they want. It's important for them to verbalize what they want Jesus to do because what they want from Jesus to say it exposes the driving passion of who they are. What they want from Jesus brings this, their inner thoughts to life. And it does ours as well. And it leads us to ask ourselves some pertinent questions. Are we looking for Jesus to give us power and position or healing and transformation? Is our desire for Jesus in our lives in the coming year about being successful or about being faithful? Is our goal being recognized or being a servant? Is our desire for God in 2012 more connected with his agenda or ours? Are our dreams about how God can use us or our dreams about how we can use God? Are our thoughts for this coming year about aligning our hearts with God or convincing God to align his heart with ours? Are we asking God for 2012 to be great according to our way of thinking or his in our time or his in our way or his are we ready for God to soften our hearts are we ready for God to make us servants even when people treat us like servants What are we anticipating from God in 2012? Each day of this new year has all kinds of opportunities for us. Every day, the decision will come before us. Is our life going to be defined by the economy and the thinking of this world? with the economy and thinking of Christ's kingdom. What do we want Jesus to do for us in 2012? Please pray with me. I suspect that the call to be a servant is a great challenge for every one of us. The call to be a slave to all is monumental for us. This morning, are we ready to ask God to do this in us in this coming year?
Heavenly Father, in some ways it's a hard word. And yet, yet it's a calling that leads us to the fulfillment of the deepest yearnings of our souls and our being. So open our eyes. Help us to want this year what you want. That we might be healed and made new and transformed and discover true greatness in your kingdom. We pray this, Father, through Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to encourage you sometime today to to take five minutes, ten minutes, thirty minutes, whatever it takes, and to sit down and to write down what do I answer the question, what do I want Jesus to do for me in 2012? To take a moment today. If you put it off, it won't happen. Do it today. Take a moment. Write it down. What do I want Jesus to do for me in my life in 2012? And make that a daily prayer that God would answer that, that He would do it in His way, in His time. Together, we discover what it truly means to be great in the kingdom of God.